0: Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to the podcast. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com. Today's guest, Keegan Kuhn, is a documentary filmmaker and social activist. He's co-producer of the movie Capspiracy, which is now streaming on Netflix, thanks to the advocacy and efforts of Leonardo DiCaprio and the upcoming movie What the Health, which looks at the giant cover up of the medical, pharmaceutical and food industries about the effects of animal foods on our physical health. So if you've read Whole, which I wrote with T. Colin Campbell, you'll remember that we found tons of evidence of malfeasance and institutional corruption in the worlds of medicine, government, nonprofits, pharma, the media. What the Health dramatizes this corruption in a way that will reach and move many more people than a book. In our conversation, I quickly learned some really surprising things about Keegan, such as he dropped out of school in sixth grade and hasn't been back since, which pleased me very much since both of my kids left school and have been what we call autodidacts, uh, self-teaching, self-directing their own learning. So it's nice to see that uh, somebody did that and lived and succeeded. Keegan spent a decade as a garden and farm designer, and we talk a lot about the connections between animal agriculture and the best ways of farming to protect the earth, regenerate life on the soil and feed people. And he lives his life according to these two rules that he learned as a little kid in his family. And they're pretty good rules. I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, Keegan Kuhn, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, I'm really curious about your your journey. You've done lots and lots of amazing things. Can you kind of give us a a thumbnail of like what what your your biographical path has been to where you are now?
1: Sure. Um, I was raised vegetarian uh, in a pretty radical household where we had two rules, which was never hurt anybody, which meant don't hurt your brother's body or your sister's body or a cow's body or a mouth, his body, don't hurt anybody, and always question authority. And mm-hmm. I think those two rules kind of set you up for a life of trying to live compassionately, but also of not being able to necessarily follow the rules. <laughs> so uh, I got involved in film, started making uh, activist-related films and animal rights investigations, uh, and that just got more and more into a long form of shooting and ended up making feature length documentaries. So my first film was actually called Turlock, which is about the largest farm animal rescue in California history where 50,000 egg laying hens were abandoned in battery cages, you know, wire cages used for raising chickens for their eggs. And the group of people who step in to try and save as many of them as possible. And, you know, one project leads to the next and ended up getting... Teaming up with Kip Anderson, my co-director for Cowspiracy, and from the time we met to the time we released the film was 10 months. It was just a, a great relationship that we struck up and i have been powering through making films since then.
0: Wow. So, so those, those two rules of your childhood, don't hurt anybody and question authority, that's uh That, that puts you kind of outside the cultural mainstream. What, what was it like kind of <laughs> growing up with those rules? You know, in, yeah, in society. You
1: know, it's, it, it's definitely definitely different. Um, you know, it makes, it makes childhood and, you know, being in uh, mainstream school uh, d- definitely challenging, you know, when, when you're questioning your teachers and you're questioning what you're being taught and you're questioning what you're being told you have to do. Um, and so, in fact, I actually only made it until sixth grade in public school. So at the age of twelve, I decided that I was no longer going to be going to school, and I took education to my own hands, <laughs> and am um, self-taught since sixth grade. So it, that definitely plays a role. Um, it you know it it changes everything because it's I think of really what it is is about critical thinking and critical living. You know, looking at all aspects of our lives, and and it's not only question you know. Authority, but it's question your own authority, too. Just because we believe something about ourselves doesn't necessarily mean it's true, and just because we you know, tell ourselves these stories over and over and over doesn't mean it's necessarily true. So it's, it has a, a lot of levels to it, I'm deeply, deeply thankful for it, even though it comes with you know, trials and tribulations. It's, I think it's a very rewarding way to live.
0: Uh, so what, what triggered your um, rising out of the education system in sixth grade?
1: Uh, well, I'm dyslexic so that was a, a big part of it. I struggled with reading, uh, since the, since I was, you know, in first grade and, you know, between that challenge of my brain, not working with the standards of, of teaching in public schools and with the question authority, that was definitely, uh, a strong impetus to push me out of public schools. I was in special needs classes and for, a young kid, that wasn't necessarily the best thing for self-esteem. Um, but I've always had a strong, strong desire for learning and just seeking out information and, and just constantly, you know, finding more. So it, my education definitely didn't end with leaving public school. It, in fact, I feel that it, it increased tenfold. <laughs>
0: I'm, 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 just, I'm just smiling because, you know, bo- both of my kids had the same trajectory. Um, you know, we had to train ourselves to not say dropping out. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and I, um, I had a harder time and it took me longer to kind of come around to, to thinking that it was a good idea, but the thought of the sixth grader who is in special needs classes, who's being told one way or another that you're, you know, educationally deficient to then say like, okay, I'm going to take this on into my, I'm going to take this into my own hands. Like there must've been some incredible spark of just self-trust. Because like you could have gone the other yeah. way. You could have gone like, oh, yeah. I suck at this. I need more help.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I attributed a lot to, to my upbringing. My, my father's a mural painter. He's an artist and, you know, self-employed my entire childhood. My mom's a midwife and birth educator and women's rights advocate. Uh, and so that was, you know, self-employed as well. Um, I have a really phenomenal uncle who homeschooled his four children, who really inspired me in a lot of ways, and about taking education back for yourself. So uh, there was definitely, it wasn't like I was stepping out into a complete void, um, but it definitely, it was. It, they just they gave me the enough encouragement to say, you know, you you don't have to do things by society's rules. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. And just this, this question is for, is for my own kids and for the other members of my family who might be listening. Did you end up going back to school and getting degrees?
1: No. So I, I ended up doing <laughs> what <you>. I was... <laughs> yeah. and you. And you can, you can
0: feed yourself.
1: And... <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, I, I ended up when I was 15, I thought it'd be a good idea to have a high school diploma. Uh, so I did a correspondence school through the mail just so I could get a high school diploma. And I did high school. I basically skipped seventh and eighth grade and then did, you know, ninth through 12th in two years through correspondence school called American School, which I think is a great program. It's actually a program that is designed for uh, adults who have dropped out of school who want to have a high school diploma. So it's actually really empowering. And, you know, our history was the people's history of America. Oh, nice. So it was a yeah, it's a, a great program for anyone who is interested in that. But to be honest, I don't really feel that that was even necessary because it's never come up whether I have a high school diploma or not. And um, yeah, I mean it's self-taught. And I think we're in a whole new age. When people ask me oftentimes with film, I said, "Oh, did you go to film school?" And said, so you, "YouTube University. Everything you need to really know at this point, you can. Someone has done a tutorial on. And I'm continually learning every day." And if I have a question, you know, we have this incredible access to a huge amount of information through the internet that you basically have any question you could ever imagine has been answered or you could get an answer to.
0: Right. This is, this is great timing for me because I'm just about to embark on a really ambitious podcast project for which I have almost no experience or skills. And, you know, so the part of the part of me that has been socialized just wants to go back to school (laughs) Like you yeah. know oh, let me find a degree in radio so that i can I can know how to do this and then, of course, like you know there's like transom there's all these incredible resources that that involve incurring absolutely no student debt and exactly. and I can do it on my own time so I'm, exactly I'm heartened by your story
1: oh, that's great yeah I mean that that is a big thing it's, and I feel like too with with the age of media that we're in right now we can we really we're, it's democratized we don't have to yeah. Spend forty thousand dollars in schooling to to become professional professionals in anything really, really want, especially in the field of media. Uh, and the technology is becoming more affordable and accessible. So, I'm really excited about the age we're in with with radio, with podcasting, with film, with video, because we all can now have a voice and produce content that others really want to see.
0: Right. Of course, there's there's a dark side to that too, which is like most of the people who are producing content have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that definitely that definitely plays a role for sure. Right.
0: And I and I'm sure you were sensitive to that in that, you know, the cowspiracy website is is basically like in terms of its references, is, is like a you know a serious scholarly book. It's like everything right. is is, you know, highly referenced. And I'm sure that's in in response at least partly to to all of the contrary views that have almost no references whatsoever.
1: Exactly, you know, and, and the, that you bring up a perfect point, and that was played a heavy role in while making the film and the release of the film was, yeah, in the age of YouTube, where anybody can make a film and put it online, none of them ever give their sources, and so it's really important. And if you, you watch the film, you can actually see uh, annotation sources in in the bottom corners of the screen. Oftentimes, it'll it'll say you know USDA, 2011, just so people can understand that's where that figure came from. They can go to calciarsi dot com and see every single fact and statistic in reference to its original study that we use in the film, plus you know, another 30% more on top of it. Um, but that's actually one of the reasons why people have asked, asked us you know, why isn't the film just for free on YouTube? And one of the reasons why we didn't release it straight to YouTube as a, a free film was just that it legitimizes it when, when you have it in theaters, when you have it on Netflix, when you have it in DVDs. People see it as a legitimate film. If it was just for free on YouTube, people would say, ah, oh, this is just another you know, YouTube you know, bedroom video. Right.
0: <laughs> so it says in your, in your bio that you've uh, spent a lot of years designing, creating, and managing organic gardens and farms. And when, when we met in, in New York City... I was just wandering, you know, I was just at this uh, green expo. I wasn't expecting to meet anyone. I was just killing some time. And I heard this guy over the loudspeaker talking like in real professional and interesting detail about farming and inputs and outputs and polyface. And I kind of wandered over. Just to listen, just because it was it was so compelling. It, it, it turned out to be you. What what is your your interest in background in in gardening and farming?
1: Yeah, so when I was seventeen, I left home and did a year apprenticeship on an organic farm in Southern California, small scale, a biointensive farm, because I wanted to learn how to live as sustainably as possible. That fits in with the you know. Don't hurt anybody. It was, well, don't hurt this planet either. And how do we produce food as sustainably as we can? Um, and I found a real passion in it, in producing a lot of food in a little bit of space with as few resources as possible, which is the method of biointensive. Uh, and from there, I started uh, working around the country, getting hired to design farms, design small scale agriculture for communities, for uh, private homes, for resorts, for schools to show people how to feed themselves sustainably because unfortunately the food system in the United States, but really around the world is very broken. We're so disattached from the food that we consume every single day. We don't know where it came from or how it was, you know, grown or raised. And so it's connecting people back to that was very important for me. And so I spent about almost a decade traveling around the world. I would, you know, work, design a garden and do install for about three months and then move on to the next, um, uh, but I, I got to a place where I felt like I, my reach was, was very limited on how many people I could actually get this information out to. And so I started to transition more into doing music. I, for a number of years, had a music project called True Nature, which was dealing with the same issues of uh, ecological balance, uh, promoting compassionate living, and, and a sober lifestyle. So I traveled around the world, did uh, six international tours with that and then felt like that was only so, so limited how many people I could reach with that and, and then push harder into doing film more seriously and full-time. Um, but agriculture is still – I think agriculture is the problem, the, the reason why we're in the situation we're in. It, it caused so many of the problems, but it is also the solution That going back to small-scale, veganic agriculture is the way we're going to feed a you know, planet that's 2.7 billion people going on 9 billion.
0: Now I'm wondering if, you know, you, you did this internship on, on the farm and then like almost immediately you are in demand as a designer. I'm was, was your dyslexia helpful in kind of seeing patterns that other people didn't see? Do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I really, I do. It was, you know, the way dyslexic brains work is, is just different from, you know, typical brain. Um, and we, yeah, we, dyslexics tend to recognize patterns easier. Um, there's definitely a, a, a larger visual aspect to how we process information. So, you know, people with dyslexia tend to see deficiencies quicker. You're going to, I mean, a, there are huge amount of people with dyslexia in the scientific field, uh, observational science in particular. So I think it did play a role. Um, I think, you know, it's, there's there's always something more to learn and that's a big part of my personality that i i just cannot get enough information i'm a a information junkie for sure so with dealing with plants i'm looking at my garden right now we my partner and i on about a thousand square feet can grow about a third of everything we eat um and just looking you know you're you're constantly going to be learning about yeah you know, what's happening with your soil through how your plants are looking and and what does that soil really need and what can you give to it and it's a continual process and you're always learning
0: mm-hmm. so describe um, biointensive farming or gardening compared to what people might think of as like ordinary you know vegetable gardening
1: yeah so biointensive was developed uh, by ecology action in the 70s and The mission was to, how do we feed the world's population on as little land with as few resources as possible? And at the time when they came up with it, there was 5 billion people on the planet. Uh, So BioIntensive looks at doing things like double digging beds, garden beds. So instead of just tilling the top six inches, which is conventional agriculture, you're actually loosening the soil by hand two feet down. BioIntensive uses no animal inputs because it's not just... Sustainable, and it's not as efficient to just grow compost yourself. So, for example, you have a a field you're going to grow. 60% of it is going to be for compost-calorie crops, so something like corn, which produces a tremendous amount of carbon that you can then till back into the soil, or growing uh, cover crops or green manures like a vetch or rye or clover that put nitrogen back into the soil. It's companion planting. It's planting much closer together than you would in conventional agriculture. It doesn't use um, any chemical fertilizers or pesticides. And with the biointensive method, you can grow all the food that, uh, that you need on, with minimal water in a, a four to six month growing season on about 4,000 square feet, which if you can put that in comparison, the average American diet takes about 43,000 square feet to feed someone for a year versus 4,000 square feet for biointensive. It, it truly is, I think, the only sustainable way for the world's population because when we look at other models of agriculture like uh, biodynamics, which is heavily dependent on animals, we don't have the land needed for everybody to be fed with biodynamics. We just simply don't. We, we would have to shrink the world's population down to you know, under 5 billion people, really closer to probably about 2 billion people to feed everybody that way sustainably. Uh, or we can look at permaculture model. And permaculture, I think, is a beautiful uh, model of growing and looking at agriculture, but sadly, again, also doesn't always take human population in consideration. And therefore, people say, well, I've got a 100-acre permaculture farm, and I've got goats and cows, and it's all sustainable. So, well, that's relatively sustainable. Sustainable, you can sustain your ecosystem that way, but you cannot feed the world that way. So, I think that's a real big missing part of the conversation of sustainable agriculture is is global sustainability versus just relative local sustainability.
0: Although, although I think people in the permaculture movement would say that 9 billion people on the planet is not sustainable anyway, you slice it.
1: Yeah. And I think there's, there's, that's a valid argument. Um, Population is an issue that's very close to my heart. I come from a family of six children and my dad has another two. So he's got eight kids. Um, And it's an issue very close to my heart. In fact, Actually, take it so seriously. I had myself sterilized when I was 23 years old because I didn't want to contribute to human population. The the truth is, though, and when people use population as a, I think sometimes as a scapegoat, well, they say, oh, well, there's just too many people. They never present a viable solution of how we can ethically reduce population. I'm not in favor of mandatory sterilization or mandated uh, birth control. Because we can see that that can, that can slow the problem, but that isn't going to stop the problem. And so while we're trying to figure out an ethical way of reducing population, we have to figure out a way to produce and feed food for the people that are here. And uh, so that's that's my goal. And I agree. Nine billion people, I mean, seven billion people, I don't think it's a sustainable number. If you look at the fossil record, we've never had seven billion megafauna of a single species on the planet before, you know, a, an animal over hundred pounds and now we have human beings I and mean, we are just we have definitely overpopulated the planet and and even if we were all vegan and even if we all lived in eco houses and we lived these green lifestyles we're still causing destruction to native ecosystems and we're taking resources away from native species that have a have a right to those resources so i would love to see a, a smaller population i'm just at a loss for what is the true solution for that and, and an immediate solution
0: Right, so you know, one of the people that I read whenever I'm like feeling too happy and I want to depress myself is uh, Derek Jensen. I don't know if you're familiar with <laughs> I thought it. Thought you were going
1: to say that. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> um, you know, his point of view is not only are there too many of us, but it, like the problem is in our our psyches, our brains, that we're we're kind of this dominator species, and. Like we're just, you know, our civilization is just built on destroying the planet and like feeding all of us is just making it worse. Like, you know, whenever, whenever you have an, whenever you have an increase in the food supply, you have an increase in the population. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Jensen's got some really interesting points and I think he had some very valid points, but he oftentimes will, I think, comes out of a place, a certain callousness. That I don't think, in reality, he could could live out. I mean, he wants to see the destruction of of the civilized world. And as much as we can glorify and look at indigenous cultures or you know non you know, quote non civilized societies, um, there was still destruction. There was still violence. There was still patriarchy. There was still homophobia. I mean, there's so many of the horrible aspects that we attribute to modern civilization existed in the prehistoric societies as well. Um, I I come from it as compassionately as I can, is that I know that I want to see my family survive. I know that I want to see my loved ones fed and and taken care of. And so I want to extend that to all humanity, that everybody deserves the right to exist um so i mean and with that i mean the destruction of of modern civilization yeah a lot of people are going to die and that's that's not something that i feel comfortable with as uh, as trying to live a compassionate lifestyle i think really what's going to come down to is is dec- decrease birth rates around the world and we are seeing birth rates declining uh they, they haven't you know inverted yet in some countries, they have, but for the most part, population is still, you know, growing and growing. But what we can see is that when we, in societies where women are, young girls are have access to education, who are valued as individuals and rather than just baby-making machines, when they're given the same rights as male-bodied people in the society, um, when they're not the downtrodden of society, birth rates decline. And so I think that's one of the solutions that we should be looking at is that if we want to talk about real sustainability, we have to talk about gender equality and giving young girls the same access to information and education and resources that young boys have access to. So for me, it's always it's trying to come back to as how do we be as holistic as possible, how do we be as compassionate as possible, and how do we look at the entire system uh, rather than just the issues that we're, we're angry at.
0: Right on. right on. Um so again, one, one of the things that I think is complicated for people, so you know, we have a, a pretty big garden in our backyard and we want to use all of it for growing food, so we bring in, you know, different inputs. And when you say like you're comparing the four thousand square feet of the biointensive veganic method to the forty-three thousand square feet of, of the standard American, like we don't see that, right? That's all like an externality. That is somebody else's problem. You're saying that we, we we need to take responsibility for for the for the totality of our impact on the world, and not just the stuff we can we can see.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, that, and that's one of the big problems with you know, conventional organic agriculture. even is that organic agriculture is you know, heralded as sustainable, but organic agriculture right now, how it's done, is Totally unsustainable. It's dependent upon animal agriculture for its existence because the vast majority of the organic fertilizer inputs on farms comes from the livestock industry. And the livestock industry is one of the leading causes of climate change, water consumption, water pollution, topsoil erosion, rainforest destruction, species extinction. I mean, literally the list goes on and on. Anything you care about in the environmental world, animal agriculture is at the forefront of destruction. And yet that is the industry that perpetuates and allows the organic industry to exist. So if you removed animal agriculture, well, now all these fertilizers have disappeared. And so we have to look at, again, whole system. What are the inputs that we're putting into farms? And if we were to instead, instead of using animal inputs that are coming from another location, and basically we're strip mining the soil from one location – bringing those nutrients on and put them into where we want to grow food. That's a problem. And so we need to be thinking, yeah, okay, I have this 4000 square feet. I need to be able to be an island and produce everything I need from here. And and really it even comes down to water. You know, if we shouldn't really be we shouldn't be pumping water out of aquifers underground to produce agriculture. It's it's not sustainable. We know that. The Ogallala aquifer, one of the largest aquifers in the world. That sits underneath basically the Midwest is dropping every year by you know, feet because we're pumping so much water out of these you know, ground reserves to feed agriculture. The vast majority is for animal agriculture, raising feed to feed animals. So with every aspect, um, it's it's no longer importing anything. And that's part of what the biointensive method is. The only thing that you're importing is seeds. Everything else you have to grow, and so and I've I set up gardens from you know, Southern California, which is Mediterranean climate, to northern Arizona, which is, you know, Alpine desert, to Pacific Northwest, to Alaska, Hawaii, Virginia, Maine, I mean across the country in different ecosystems to see if this method works. And the truth is is that as long as you have some sort of plant vegetation, you can build that soil up to be able to produce an abundance of, of food. And that's again one of the arguments that's often used with against veganic agriculture or veganism people will say well you can only this land is only good for grazing livestock you can't produce food on it other than meat or milk and that's just clearly false those animals have to eat vegetation to survive to produce the meat on their bones then there's there's water and resources that you could produce agriculture you're going to produce less than fertile land but the same thing with the animals you're going to produce about 16 times more protein on any given area of land with growing plants than with raising animals, simply because of the feed conversion ratio it's just vastly more efficient to grow plants and eat them directly than growing plants feed them to an animal and then eating that animal.
0: Right and one of the reasons I really enjoy hearing you talk about it is because you've you know as the Native Americans say grown corn with it you' not, you're not just talking from theory that, uh, yeah. that you you've put this into practice and you know you've, you've run the numbers and pulled plants out of the ground
1: yeah that's it. and and that's again a big part of i i i try and have as my hand in as many different projects as i can for that reason because i want to have the experience and i want to be able to speak from from actual you know trials and seeing how things work um and and then going back to Derek Jensen that's one of my issues with Jensen is that he a lot of his stuff is theoretical he's not ready to give up on society yet he still has a house still has computers still drives a truck still goes to the store to get his groceries so mm-hmm. when he's ready to do those things then it'll be easier for me to listen and and in fact you know i used to spend six months out of the year living without electricity i would live away from society as much as possible to see is this is this a solution and uh, you know it's it's definitely a, a challenge to live that way uh, it's not necessarily you know an argument against it but we should experience things and so that we can speak from experience in my feeling
0: right the other the other thing that uh you know, that bothers me about animal agriculture, not, not from the, you know, the big picture that you're talking about, but just like, it just, it feels very rude to me <laughs> to treat animals that way. And when, when we do, and when we even, you know, use like, you know, plow horses or, or oxen, like when we, when we go back to kind of a very primitive and you might say a, a sustainable or more sustainable way, like it's not good for humans. We don't, we don't get to move enough. Like I, I did double digging and, man, at the end of double digging, like I really needed the calories that were going to come out of that bed. Like <laughs> there, there was kind of an urgent dependency, you know, because this yeah. stuff, like like growing our own food is is kind of hard work if you're not just living on, off of like a, uh, you know, a food forest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it definitely, it, it definitely takes more input. It, it's about being actively involved in the production of your food. Um, but even in what you're saying about you know that it's not good for humans the animal agriculture i think i think it's not good for i mean one using you know beast of burden to plow fields isn't isn't really sustainable because again a certain amount of that food grown is going to have to be given to that animal to to keep them alive to so they can continue to plow the field. so you're going to require even more land you know potentially 50% more land than you would if you didn't have that you, that animal and you were just digging those beds it yourself. Um, but then there's, a, there's the emotional aspect of it that I think that when we when we take another living creature and we turn them into an object or a machine that this animal exists to produce milk, produce eggs, produce meat, to pull a plow. It's I think it's one of the worst forms of uh, objectification that we can do because we're we're literally saying, you are, you are now an object. You are now a tool instead of you are a living being. You are a creature that has emotions and desires of their own. And so from a compassionate standpoint, I don't feel comfortable with that. And, and you know, what are those animals' desires? And then just coming back to it. We don't have the land, the resources, or energy to really to do that with 7 billion people.
0: Right. So I, I wanted to talk to you specifically about, um, the new film that's, uh, I guess in production now, what the health. Yeah. Uh, so,
1: so what the health is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. So what the health is, um, uh, follow up to conspiracy and follows my co-director, Kip Anderson, once again, finding out about another industry that we haven't gotten the full, full truth from and It was something that came up while we were working on Cowspiracy. Cowspiracy looks at the environmental impacts of raising animals for food and that's the leading cause of environmental destruction around the world, and yet the large environmental organizations, many of them, are failing to address it properly or talk about it even at all. And while we were doing research on that, we kept coming up against the information about how damaging eating animal products can be for our health, you know, associated with increased rates of heart disease, of cancers, of diabetes, hypertension, list of ailments associated with animal product consumption just goes on and on. And we tried to, we were going to try and put that into Cowspiracy, but it felt like it was just such a, it was a whole nother film. And so we put it on the shelf and came back to it last year and we started doing more research and it just got deeper and deeper and deeper looking at the health implications of eating animals and then why the large health organizations are promoting eating animals. So I think you could stop anybody on the street and ask them, you know, if red meat causes heart disease, and they will all say, yes, everybody knows that red meat isn't good for your heart, that it's associated with heart disease. And yet you go to the American Heart Association's website, they have an entire section for beef, entire section for pork, entire section for chicken, entire section for eggs, for recipes that are considered their heart-healthy recipes. Um, you can go on the American Diabetes Association. You know, We know that processed meat is directly linked to type 2 diabetes. It's, it is the leading cause of type 2 diabetes, the consumption of processed meat, 51%. One serving of processed meat per day increases your rate of developing type 2 diabetes by 51%. And yet we have bacon-wrapped shrimp recipes on the American Diabetes Association website. So it's, it's looking... And posing these questions to the health organizations, but it's also going so much deeper. It's looking at the link between the pharmaceutical industry and these foods, looking at the role that government plays, looking at the social implications of the people who have to live near these farms that are producing the foods that people are eating. Uh, I mean, it just goes so deep into so many other levels that I think it's going to be a film that shakes people up even more than conspiracy, even, because it really hits close to home. I mean, one out of three people in the world dies of heart disease. And cancer is just rampant. It's almost impossible to live, particularly in the Western world, and not know somebody who's been affected by heart disease, cancer, or diabetes. So it's, I think, a film that has the potential to, to wake people up and to potentially save a lot of lives.
0: Yeah, see, I, I'm... When I think about the difference in what you're describing in Cowspiracy, like the ordinary person could spend their whole life not thinking about the National Resources Defense Council or Greenpeace or factory farms or slaughterhouses, like they're all out of sight, out of mind, unless you decide otherwise. But everybody goes to the doctor, everybody goes gets health care, everybody sees TV commercials promoting, the, you know, the latest. Um, blood sugar, you know, blood glucose control drug, like we're, we're invested in this system and we've been told that it's, it's in our best interest. Like when you, when you share this with civilians, what, what kind of initial responses do you get when you're basically saying like there's a giant conspiracy to keep you sick so that other people can make money?
1: You know, it's, uh, you know, the film hasn't come out yet, we're still in production, but when we have talked about it, a lot of people will say, yeah, that makes sense. Or they'll say, yeah, that well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would the American Heart Association have recipes for beef on their website? That That's totally illogical. Why would the American Cancer Society have processed meat on their website when the World Health Organization says it's a group one carcinogen right up there with asbestos, plutonium, and tobacco? Um it's 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 just turning over that page and, and just pulling back the veil a little bit and letting people see that hey there's there's a much bigger story here. But just like with Cal Spears, we know that in order to present the information, we have to present hard facts. And so this film is exhaustively researched, and and the resources and the fact page that's going to go along with what the health is just incredible because there's so much information that backs up. I mean the science is all there. It's it's. So clearly showing the links between these diseases, but also that the positive that we can we can prevent these diseases and even oftentimes reverse these diseases by changing our diets. Um, but I mean, it's you, know, you just you just follow the money. Just look at the the paper trail, and and it's all right there for anybody to see.
0: Right now, I've I've done a lot of following the money in terms of the internet. Like you go on the, you know, American Diabetes Association website and you see, well, who are their big sponsors? Um, Or, you know, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics or the American Cancer Society. And I did a lot of that research when I was working on Whole with T. Colin Campbell, kind of going to these contemporary sites and just following the money. But still there was there was something missing. Like I had I had to make some assumptions that like wouldn't hold up in a court of law. Like, you know what I mean? Did did you get the chance to actually doing this documentary to interview people to find some smoking guns as opposed to just here are some facts on the ground that don't look so good?
1: Yeah, we we did get a few interviews. Um, the vast majority of these organizations have declined interviews, uh, and and we've given them every single opportunity possible. And so when when someone doesn't want to answer your question it it you're only left to speculate and so that's and we've told these organizations again and again and again if you cannot give us an answer to just basic questions then we are left with just speculation um, and and speculation you, it's going to be based off of the best available evidence that you have and the best available evidence that we have is what you just talked about look at their donors look at their sponsors look at where they're getting money and and you can come up with your best conclusion.
0: Mm-hmm. Did Did you get people willing to, to talk like th- things that, uh, you know, that, that would, will shock us?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I don't want to give away too much of the film, but yeah, there's definitely some, there's more than a few really shocking moments in the film. Okay.
0: So what, one of the uh, public criticisms of Cowspiracy is that you cherry picked right? That you just looked at the things you wanted to look at. And, you know, when I talk to people about health, you know, my my gig right now is I sort of consult with people about helping them make good decisions about their health. And when we look at the, you know, the the studies on statins and how good are they compared to doing nothing or certainly compared to a plant-based diet, you know, they're... It's it's very very clear. But then when I give talks, there's always people say, well, yeah, but there's this study and there's that other study, and and I get you know I get accused of being you know a, a card carrying you know radical vegan peta activist. Not none of which is is true. But how how do how do you how did you decide like which doctors to talk to? Because I saw in, I saw in the um, the trailer, there's a lot of you know, the usual suspects, Goldhammer, Michael Clapper, Esselstyn, Garth Davis. How, how did you decide who to talk to?
1: Yeah, so and that was, I think it's, you know, when it goes to the cherry-picking people, yeah, we're going to say that. You guys are just cherry-picking with the facts and conspiracy in it. And in fact, in conspiracy, we chose, because we didn't want to be called that, we chose conservative figures all at every strict. Step of the board, we made sure that our figures weren't the top numbers. And so, for example, we referenced 2,500 gallons of water produce a pound of beef in the film, but there's actually studies that put it close to 10,000 gallons of water. Of course, we didn't choose the 10,000 gallons; we went, well, let's go with a conservative number." And that's again across everything. So we decided to do the same thing with what the health is. Yes, there. I mean, there are studies that say that eating eggs raise your cholesterol levels, you know, astronomically. And then there's a study that says, oh, it doesn't. It doesn't raise your cholesterol. But then you look at that information. Well, first, who funded each study? And the study that says that cholesterol doesn't negatively affect, eating eggs doesn't negatively affect cholesterol, all oh, was funded by the egg board. And two, look at the, the actual study, and, the, and you actually see that, oh, well, if you start with somebody at cholesterol of 212 and you feed them two eggs a day, yeah, their cholesterol only goes up to 215. So, not that big of an issue. But in that same exact study, and you have somebody who is eating oatmeal every day instead of two or three eggs, their cholesterol drops by 15 points. <laughs> but the conclusion of the study is eggs don't negatively affect cholesterol levels.
0: Right. Uh, so, you, you so it, yeah, it, bullets don't hurt dead people. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, it, it's looking at that and and it's honestly looking at all the information. Um, And so it's something that we we looked at and was with with conspiracy, is there any way to produce animal foods to feed the world? Is that possible in any method? And the same thing in in this film is, can you eat animal products in in any realm and it not be detrimental to your health? Um, And so it's something we explore, absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm. So, So is the film basically saying like any amount of animal products is going to hurt you?
1: You know it's we don't come out and say that, um, but when you look at the information that's available, there's nothing in animal products that benefits human health that you can't find in plant foods so the the protein, the calcium, the iron, the you know micronutrients they're all more abundant, readily available, and healthier in plant foods, so the argument that we have to eat meat is is mute because. Everything we need comes from we can get from plants, and without the cholesterol, without the saturated fat, without you know the high levels of dioxins or strontium ninety or any of the other environmental pollutants that are associated with animal foods. Um, and I think we make the argument pretty strong. But again, the film this, that's kind of more of a, a smaller part of the film. It's looking at at just how how dangerous these foods have the potential to be because of how we consume them and at the rates that we consume them.
0: Mm -hmm. So how, how did you decide who to talk to? Which, which doctors did you want to get their input?
1: Uh, you know, it was, we were looking at, yeah, who, who's done the most research, who's had the most experience with this and, and who, you know, who's really credible. And so, yeah, I mean, Dr. Michael Greger has, you know, extensive research. And, and, you know, he's someone who's often, you know, people say he's cherry picks as well, but he does look at the the meat research that's coming out, and the egg research and the cholesterol research, and parses it, and looks at it, and says, okay, well, this is why their conclusion was wrong. Uh, their science isn't wrong, it's just their conclusion that they came up with. Uh, Garth Davis, again, is another perfect example of someone who looks at the research and, and actually pulls it apart. So there, although these people may be plant-based, and they may be you know, vegan in their own lives, they are looking at the information. And we asked them too, if a study came out that scientifically showed that actually eating animals, you know, and animal products was good for you, what would you say? And I say, ah, if that's really what it was, I would have to put any sort of personal feeling that I have aside in for the promotion of true health and for science. And so I can feel that they are unbiased in that, that they're willing to look at all the information. And as a, trying to be an objective filmmaker, we're doing the same thing.
0: Right. And I'd say, you know, in working with with Garth, um, he's well aware of the impact of personal biases. And so he he is someone who tries doubly hard to find truth on the other side. (laughs) He, He subscribes to more like paleo blogs and Twitter feeds than anyone I know yeah and you know he, he engages in uh, in discussion and and takes them very very seriously because because he knows that his personal beliefs have the have the potential to to uh to blind him to other facts
1: exactly exactly
0: so I also have to ask like forks over knives tackles the health issue um plant your nation came out tackled the health issue, and also looked a little bit behind the scenes of politics. What what made you excited to do what the health like? What is it bringing that you think is the next step in the discourse?
1: Yeah, the the big thing that separates us from the previous films and and you know forks over knives you know has has done so much to get this conversation going around health. Um, you know, the China study has done so much to change people. Plant pure nation is is you know growing and. Can, continually adding to the conversation i think what what the health does differently is that we go another step beyond personal health and we really look at we go to residences in north carolina who are forced to live next to pig farms and their rates of asthma we look at the fact that these people's water is being polluted and that whether eating meat whether you decide to eat animal products or not it's really it's whether anyone in our society decides to eat animal products and how it affects us. We're looking at the healthcare impact. We're looking at the pharmaceuticals vested interest and in, in people staying sick. Uh, we're looking at the real impacts of of how government is just bought and sold by this industry. So we, we take it out of just personal health and looking at it as a much more holistic approach, in my opinion. Again, and that is in no way to take away from those other films. Those other films laid the foundation that allowed us to talk about these other issues.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you were talking about pharmaceutical companies, I, I have a hard time talking about it well, because when I get on the soapbox, I... I tend to be kind of all or nothing and I have friends who work, you know, they're not CEOs or shareholders that like work in in pharmaceutical companies doing research, managing clinical trials, things like that. And the people that I know are are without exception good, kind, smart people who believe they're they're helping the world, you know, and they're working with a lot of, you know, sort of orphan drugs that people do need. But h- how do you talk about the pharmaceutical industry in a way that's fair? to to everyone and still gets the message across?
1: Yeah, you know, that, that's a, I think it's a great question and it's I don't think that any of these people who are working in any of these industries are bad people I mean, whether they're the people who raise animals in horrible confinement I don't think those people are necessarily bad people I don't think the people who work for these health organizations that are failing to address the issue are bad people or the people who are making literally trillions of dollars off of drugs used to treat these diseases are bad people. I think I think people are trying to exist in this world. They're trying to take care of themselves and take care of their families, and they're doing that in whatever way they think they can. But the pharmaceutical industry, I mean, we know raises prices on, on life, truly life-saving drugs continually, not because they have to. They spend more money. They spend about twice as much money on marketing their drugs than they do on Research producing the drugs, so just that alone says, hey, this is this is about making money. This isn't about helping people. And then we can look at the fact that American Diabetes Association has ten major donors who give over a million dollars or more, who are from the pharmaceutical industry. Now, why would somebody who makes a a, a diabetes drug give money to an organization? I mean, they're literally making billions of dollars off these diabetes drugs. Give money to an organization whose mission statement is to find a cure to, for diabetes. And that would, that would be literally pulling millions, billions of dollars out of this company. Why would they support an, an organization if that's what their mission, unless that's not their mission, unless this is about making money, this isn't about getting people healthy? Because the truth is we know that you can stop and reverse heart disease with a plant-based diet. You don't need these these drugs statin drugs we know that we can stop and oftentimes reverse type 2 diabetes in about 90 percent of the cases without the use of drugs with just plant foods but no one's making money off of the plant foods and so if these these pharmaceutical industries were really interested in preventing and stopping diseases well then (laughs) they would be making pills that were full of vegetables and it would be a plate it would be salads it would be the real solutions, the real cures to these problems, instead of just band-aids that cover up the symptoms of these diseases.
0: So, so, the 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 naive interpretation, or the most charitable, is you know to take the organizations at face value, and they say, well, you know, people aren't going to make radical changes. So, so we're go- we're we're not going to demand it of them, or or even you know broadcast it because we know people won't do it but we know people will take a pill
1: yeah and and that's you know it's, a, it's an interesting thing because when someone is diagnosed with lung cancer a doctor doesn't hold back from saying hey you gotta quit smoking they say you gotta quit smoking that's a radical shift in someone's lifestyle to you know a 30-year smoker and you tell them i have to quit that's that's unthinkable but no doctor would hesitate in saying you have to quit they say absolutely you have to quit it's not don't cut back you've got to get off of it and so when we see organizations and physicians who are refusing to talk about this as the real real solution or a solution because they don't think that the patient will comply with the recommendation well (laughs) that would be like a doctor not saying quit smoking cigarettes um and, and people do make extreme lifestyle choices all the time associated with their health. They have ga- they have gastric bypass surgeries. They have, you know, their heart, their chest cracked open and, you know, veins removed from their arms, arteries from their arms put into their hearts. I mean, they have these incredibly invasive life-threatening surgeries all the time. And these are extreme measures, lifestyle changes because of their diets. So getting people in a doctor encouraging people to change their diets instead of going under the knife, I think, is is the least extreme, the thing that we could we could say. But you know, we we go into that in the film is that you know a lot of doctors. It's not really the physicians' fault because they weren't taught this information. It's not taught in medical schools. Most medical school schools don't focus on nutrition, uh, and most physicians get minimal, extremely minimal nutritional training. So this is about, you know, educating the educators. This is about getting information out to as many people as possible. But then for people to take responsibility for themselves that, you know, it's easy for me coming from the question authority approach, but two, to question the authority of of advertising, question the authority of your doctor, that perhaps, you know, a patient knows more about nutrition than their doctor does. Uh, And the age that we're living in with information, accessibility of information, I think we are in a, a new age of, Taking true responsibility for our health.
0: So, what's what's your hope um, for the for what the health in terms of what it will accomplish? Who will see it? Like, what 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 are you hoping to to shake up by releasing it?
1: You know what my hope is for no family to have to lose a loved one to heart disease ever again for nobody to have to find out that their child has type 2 diabetes and because of that will live two decades less than they would have if they didn't. And My hope is that people who have a family history of cancer who believe that they're going to get cancer because their grandmother had cancer and their mother had cancer, for them to realize that it's not a death sentence, that you can change lifestyle aspects to decrease dramatically your chances of developing those same cancers that are, have been viewed as hereditary cancers that are in fact environmental cancers. That's that's the hope of the film is to inspire people to look at their, their own lifestyles and, and where they can make a difference for themselves and for their family and for our larger community. Mm-hmm. I mean, big big picture. Well, like in, in terms,
0: be... yeah. So in, in terms of like the the mechanisms, you know, obviously if the entire world saw the film and everybody changed, then, you know, the pharmaceutical industry could go, you know, you know, <laughs> could go away. Uh, it's not, yeah. it's not the phrase I was thinking originally. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so like, like with Cowspiracy, it feels like that, like there was a groundswell and there, there has been some responsiveness by some of the environmental organizations, right? They've started shifting, putting up pages, talking about the cost of animal agriculture on climate and, and environmental degradation, Um, I'm wondering, like, do you have thoughts about mechanisms? Like as you're, as you're making the movie, you're making choices about language, music, cutting, like all those edits. Like, did you have kind of a a media, a, a communication strategy in mind, like how you wanted this to play out?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're with Calspiracy. We really we did, you know, crowdfunding campaign. We used the internet and every aspect of it to to get that groundswell to the point that Leonardo DiCaprio came on as the executive producer and took it to Netflix, and now it's, you know, around the world everywhere that Netflix exists, Calspiracy exists, um, and we use that. Yeah, again, from from this groundswell of grassroots activists, and and so our, our approach is the same way with what the health is that. I don't think change will happen from a top-down approach. I think it's, gonna, it's always going to happen from grassroots up. So it's getting people involved in the film. And we did a crowdfunding campaign to cover our post-production costs and translations and dubbing. Uh, a couple months ago, we set a goal of $54,000 to raise to cover a lot of those expenses, and we ended up raising $245,000. Just astronomical how many people have come out and supported the film. Um, And our release strategy is is still, you know, we're still looking at the different options that are available to us. We want to have it as available to as many people as possible. So we're going to have it dubbed into Spanish, German, Portuguese, and Mandarin to begin with and subtitled into 20 plus languages. And then we'll see. And maybe the film will go up on Netflix. Netflix has said they're interested in the film. Uh, Maybe it'll go with another distribution outlet maybe it'll be television it's all really waiting to see the the big the huge hope is just to get the film in front of as many people as possible make the information as accessible as possible
0: right is is leonardo dicaprio involved in this project as well
1: he's not um we haven't talked to him yet about this film i he's he's really focused on the environment so i don't know if this would be a film that he'd necessarily be interested in Uh um but but could be and so that's a conversation we're we're looking to have
0: right is is, is there, do you have like a wish list of like a person that you would love to see this movie and contact you and say boy i want to help
1: yeah we have a whole bunch of them <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're waiting till we have a cut of the film done and then we're going to send it around and and see if there's you know some of our some of the big heroes if they'd be interested in getting involved because it's you know having when leonardo DiCaprio came on and as executive producer of *Cowspiracy*, of course it you know boosts the film dramatically because it one is legitimate, um, two to just to have his name associated with the film it makes more, that many more people who wouldn't necessarily be interested in a film about the environment interested. And so you know I sh- tremendous amount of respect for DiCaprio for using his name to really promote true sustainability, and I think he is a champion of our time talking about environmental issues, and you just look at his acceptance speech for his Academy Award, he used it to talk about the planet and the plight of the planet. And I think it says a lot about him as an individual.
0: Right. right. When, what's the uh, scheduled release date? When, when can those of us who've been watching the trailer and watching the dollars rack up on Indiegogo start, you know, lay, lay, lay in the, yeah. pl- planning the release uh, parties in our, in, our, in our homes and
1: neighborhoods? That's a great question. We thought we would have been done with the film last year, so it's it is a everyday ten twelve hours a day job uh, working on getting the film done we're we're pretty close, but the hope and goal is to have it out this summer, uh, but we will we will see it's it's kind of the eighty twenty rule eighty percent of the work takes twenty percent of the time and that last twenty percent is is that eighty percent? It's just dragging along to get it to to a point where we're really happy with it but the film's 91 minutes at this point and we're just working it and working and working it to make it as powerful as we can possibly make
0: awesome well i feel like we should stop talking so you can get back to work
1: (laughs) i'm not not feeling guilty (laughs) thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it and for having me on the show
0: oh thank you so much and it's been a a a pleasure and an inspiration and i can't wait to see it and for for folks who are listening if you haven't seen cowspiracy go check that out check out the trailer for what the health and keegan thank you so much for everything Uh, thank you take care i hope you enjoyed this episode of the plant yourself podcast be sure to check out the show notes with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com 157. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 156 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. If you listen to the podcast but don't get the weekly email newsletter, get the over to plantyourself.com and sign up. I include links to original articles I write, I share recent episodes of my weekly Tribe Well TV show and generally try to use proper grammar and avoid typos. Thanks to podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn Mclellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, and Jen Vilkanovsky for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can share this on other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes. You can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. Just look in the right sidebar for the Patreon or donate buttons. Next week, I talk with Sandy Cronick, who's founder and CEO of the food hub Eastern Carolina Organics, ECO which has made organic farming a feasible choice for people who want to do good and also make a decent living. Her model of supporting mid-sized organic and sustainable farms is changing the food climate where I live and inspiring other communities to implement some of ECO's innovations. All good stuff, and you can hear about it next week. In garden news, we are coming to the very end of our kale and collard season, but... In compensation, we're starting to get potatoes out of the ground. Last night, Mia pulled three red potatoes and two tiny little yellow potatoes out of the ground, and I'm really looking forward to not having to pay two bucks a pound for organic potatoes since we eat so much of them in this house. So, if you see one good thing coming to an end, maybe look around for another good thing that's going to take its place. And as always, be well, my friends. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr Cobb, Rachel Barron, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bysak, the Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Lea Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkus Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selbley. <laughs> hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Fronczak, Jeanette Benin, Gillesert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Daron Avizov, Gio and Car- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva La L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Linneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, and Ollie Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly, Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie, Lynch at Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Hedegaard, Aguard, Izatuzinois, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny and Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divitsch, Summer Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Ikenelli Levy Wallach, Rosamond McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty Di Martino, Mike and Donna Cartz, and Bishop, Bill Briel, Gunther Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, for and Kramer Lent, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagan, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Cesar, Shel Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Bottom, of Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson. For your